This talk is given by a student at Ordinary Mind Zendo. In these talks, senior students explore their personal journeys, share their understanding of the Dharma, and offer encouragement to others in their practice. The talks are unique in that they present a diverse set of voices walking a common path. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see everyone. Good morning, everybody. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. Great. Okay. So, leave it to an English teacher to have everything written down word for word that I want to say. Um, But I'm a little bit nervous, so um, I'm going to be reading a good deal of my talk. And just let me know if my voice gets low or unclear. So, I titled my talk... Tips from Joshu on avoiding burnout. Uh, I'd like to start today by reading a case from a Mumon Khan most of us are probably already familiar with. Case 7, Joshu's Wash Your Bowls. A monk said to Joshu, I have just entered this monastery. Please, teach me. Have you eaten your rice porridge? asked Joshu. Yes, I have, replied the monk. Then you'd better wash your bowls, said Joshu. With this, the monk gained insight. And Mumon's comment is, which I'll come back to a little later in the talk, he says, uh, when he opens his mouth, Joshu shows his gallbladder. He displays his heart and liver. I wonder if this monk really did hear the truth. I hope he did not mistake the bell for a jar. So, Joshu is a bit of a rock star in the Zen world. He appears seven times in the Mumun Khan and a dozen times in the Blue Cliff record. So, since he plays such a major role in both of these texts, it seems wise to study what he has to offer. In this case, Joshu is advising an earnest Unsui monk, a beginner monk, to empty himself of each experience and see each moment with fresh eyes. To quote unquote, wash your bowl, is to rid yourself of the past experiences and continually pay, pay attention to the present. Wash away the past over and over again and focus on now, and now, and now. This is basic Zen teaching. And today I'd like to share some of my personal story along with how my view of this koan has changed since becoming a part of Ordinary Mind. Growing up, my family owned a restaurant. First, my grandparents owned it, holding uh, fish fries every Friday night, and grand buffets every Saturday. And we were, of course, closed on Sundays. (laughs) As As a good Protestant family. People from our small town would line up around the block to eat at our place called the Country Squire with its combination of great food and affordable prices. My own family, my parents and uh, my four siblings and I would go there and be treated like royalty. I remember one meal in particular, uh, I must have been no older than three or four 
at the time. And I have three brothers, three older brothers, and one older sister. I'm the baby. And I was being tricked, you know, I was three or four, and I was tricked or dared or something by my older brothers to try a delicacy known as pickled beef tongue from the salad bar. <laughs> and always eager to please. I tried it, of course. And I remember my grandmother relaying glass after glass of chocolate milk to my side so that I could get the unpleasant taste out of my mouth as quickly as possible. These are really happy memories, right? In the sense that I tried something, I didn't like it, and an adult noticed my distress and helped to fix it. They came to my aid. As we grew older, my siblings and I were put to work in the restaurant, peeling potatoes with cousins in a cool corner of the kitchen to start, and then work, working our way up to washing dishes and bussing tables. You might see where I'm going with this. We worked a little and kept out of the way of the full-time cooks and wait staff, enjoying the special status that permitted us to drink as much Pepsi as we wanted and roam around the back rooms of the kitchen. My mother took over the restaurant when I was 10 and the workload stopped being optional. Now a single parent, my mother relied on our help to help to keep the place operating and dragging our feet was met with stern disapproval. The message growing up was, do as much as you can to help out and don't complain. As you can imagine, this has been a blessing to me and a curse. Coming to Zen practice 30 years ago, when I was writing this talk, I was like, seriously, is it 30 years ago? 30 years ago. My early training in the restaurant served me well. I volunteered eagerly to help out and led the grueling practice of 108 full prostrations every day in a Korean Zen center where I first began practicing. I helped out and was rewarded with appreciative bows and approving glances. It all felt very good to wash my bowls along with everyone else's and expect nothing in return. As long as I was doing, helping, being of use as a good little bodhisattva, I stayed in the light of a special experience, which I thought was what Zen practice was all about. Hard work and selfless effort was my path to that state of being until it wasn't. Soon enough, the honeymoon period ended and my efforts didn't provide me with those warm feelings of peace and ease. Instead, I felt resentful, resentful, not to mention exhausted. I felt empty, not emptiness. So I tried even harder to use the same tools, the only tools in my kit at the time, to end my suffering. Buddhist texts encouraged me, and I took the bodhisattva's vow to heart, trying to become what everyone needed for comfort. The result, more resentment and anger, as well as the added bonus of beating myself up. What was wrong with me? Why wasn't I enjoying the fruits of my labor like before? What was happening? Talk about putting another head on top of my own. 
I thought I had lost my way, and luckily I had. I had exhausted myself as well as my own limited understanding of what practice was, but never the quitter. I wanted to continue, so I started reading. I studied the Mumon Khan for years and spent time in a Rinzai monastery, which was in many ways a mirror to my mother's restaurant. Tons of work to do and praise for those who could do the most with a peaceful smile on their faces. One night while preparing for a special Oban ceremony, I told the head Tenzo that I was tired. Finally, I told him I was tired. And I left before being dismissed. He had words with me the next day and I finally began to wonder if this top-down approach of always saying hi to everything was the right path for me. The Oxford English Dictionary defines burnout as, quote, the reduction of a fuel or substance to nothing through use or combustion. This is stuff like engine burnout. <clears throat> Psychology Today defines it as a state of emotional, mental, and often physical exhaustion brought on by prolonged or repeated stress. Burnout's all around us. These days, it seems more than ever before. It seems like any moniker can be put in front of burnout and someone is talking about it. Teacher burnout, caregiver burnout, social media burnout, compassion burnout, COVID burnout, sourdough burnout, burnout, burnout. We are burned out more than ever. And while it may have become another psychological term integrated into our vernacular, along with narcissism, gaslighting, and projection, to name just a few, that doesn't make it any less of a problem or a burden. I imagine there's also a meditation burnout running rampant, with practitioners exhausting and berating themselves on the cushion to feel an increasingly elusive sense of ease that just won't come. So what can Joshu do for us? Joshu literally encourages us to just wash up our own bowls, not to take on the problems of the world with endless compassion and goodwill. Barry reminds us to make our beds and to open our bills when they arrive. He also advises us to study the curative fantasies we bring to our practice. Take care of your life is the message, not take care of everyone else's lives. And if taking care of others' lives through people-pleasing and over-functioning is your life, take a look at that. Don't let your compassion be included to everyone minus one. Bingo. A bodhisattva is a beautiful image an encourager to stretch ourselves beyond our limitations and a kindly counterbalance to the gruff and grumpy monks, though I have to say I really love them, in many koans. Her idea of kindness, or no, I'm sorry, let me read that again. 
a kindly counterbalance to the gruff and grumpy monks in so many koans whose idea of kindness is a slap. But when I first started practicing, I turned the bodhisattva of compassion into another maternal figure, keeping tabs on my progress. Nowadays, with lots of painful reminders, I see her as a reminder to be softer with myself, to notice the messages I've internalized behind work and learning, learning to what keeps me from slowing down, to do enough and loosen my grip on the belief that exhausting myself is the way to gain love and approval. This is a far more ordinary type of liberation than the bliss I experienced when I first began practice. It's a bit like the ease of sitting on a bench during a quote-unquote break during sashin. Not a lot of razzmatazz, but a greater sense of feeling good in my own skin. I'd like to close my talk with a final thought about Muman's commentary on this case. He writes, when he opens his mouth, Joshu shows his gallbladder. He displays his heart and liver. I wonder if this monk really did hear the truth. I hope he did not mistake the bell for a jar. I'm an English teacher and I love a good metaphor. A bell a bell produces sound waves emanating and moving forward into space. These waves blend with the atmosphere and are integrated and released into the greater world. A jar confines, keeps what is hidden separate, stagnant, and isolated. Perhaps washing our own bowl, taking care of my own life with care and attention, can serve as a similar wave of encouragement to others. Working as a sign of goodness, of self-worth, is an important part of who I am, formed from early, my early experiences in childhood and repeated through countless thoughts, words, and actions in my daily life. I appreciate my energy and my desire to serve others, but have learned that if left untethered, it's a road to burnout and discontent, whether in my home, at work, or in the zendo. Very recently talked about how our vows define who we are. With that in mind, and by shamelessly borrowing from the Bodhisattva's vow and the vow of atonement, I'd like to close my talk with this. I vow with all beings to extend tender care to myself, including my curative fantasies, blind tendencies, and counterproductive habits, which have been accumulated upon me through countless years of conditioning and modeling, born from my beginningless greed, anger, and folly, I take up this vow so that I can gain maturity in Buddha's wisdom, realize the awakened life together with all beings, and add a verse from my own life to the song of Zazen. Thank you very much. <laughs>